Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood from 1988. Directed by John Carl Beekler, written by Daryl Haney, starring Lar Park Lincoln, Kevin Spurdus, Terry Kaiser, Susan Blue, and Kane Hodder. In this film, Jason is accidentally resurrected from the dead by a girl with telekinesis. He then proceeds to wreak havoc on some horny teenagers. And if you're new to the show, we're going to keep this spoiler free just for the first 15-20 minutes or so while we talk about some background info on the movie, and then after that, we're going to play some transition music and get into spoiler mode. So once you hear the transition music, it's time to duck out if you haven't seen this. It's not streaming anywhere, but uh, you you can... Or wait, I think it's streaming a couple other... A couple random places, but I think you might have to might have to rent this one. Um, and happy upcoming Friday the 13th. We continue our tradition of making our way through the franchise on the week of a Friday the 13th. And Ashwin, we are on pace to wrap up on December 13th, 2024. Oh, man. So still like two more years of this. Two more years of slowly checking these off of our watch list. Wow. Are you, you ever get tempted, uh, like as we're going through this, uh, to just like kind of knock out the whole series at once? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like to, I like to watch these for the first time with you and I like to come in fresh for the episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's fun. I'm, I, yeah, it, it, I think when we started, we were like really low on this series. Uh, but yeah, now like seven films in, um, I, I mean, this is like the series we've covered the most in our history, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Easily. That's kind of cool. And yeah, I kind of feel like I'm building a fondness for it. Are you? I think I am a little bit, and I think that we're both also learning to appreciate slashers a little bit more. 80s slashers wasn't really either of our wheelhouses when we started this. I still don't think it is our wheelhouse, but we are, they're getting under our skin a little bit more. They're cracking away at, at whatever part of us didn't like them, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I think what helps with that is, um, I think we might have talked about this on the last episode, but the shifts from like supernatural horror in like the last three or four years, like slashers kind of feel like they're back in style in a way uh, recently, right? They do. Yeah. You think that's part of it? I think so. I think it, it's it's hard to because I, I think when we started this it was like 2018, and I, I know I was all about like supernatural horror and kind of down on slashers. But I think some of the films we've seen in the last year, uh, I think it, there's been like this whole revitalization going on. So uh, it's it's it makes me appreciate these 80s films a little bit more as like pioneers of that. Sure, sure, and I think I've seen more 80s slashers that are not parts of big franchises, and it's made me have a bit more of a fondness for the genre a little bit more and and it's refreshing to go watch other ones and then come back to friday the 13th yeah are you talking about like the burning and things like that yeah the burning uh i watched pieces recently which are a lot of our listeners want us to do an episode on which we'll have to cover at some point soon um just like random ones that the some of the discord guys have recommended have have been fun cool uh pieces was a slasher i didn't realize that Pieces was a slasher, and The Mutilator is one I watched, I say recently, like all within the past year or so. And then, oh, you know, some some we've done on the podcast too, like, uh, why can't I remember the name of the Christmas one? Um, Black Christmas? 
Silent Night, Deadly Night. <laughs> oh, yeah. Silent Night, Deadly Night, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, there, there are a bunch of gems there in the 80s that were, yeah, these uh, one-off or two-off slashers. Sure, yeah, and if they're not gems, there's there's something... I'm learning to appreciate them for, for what they are, I guess. Right, right. I think so, too. Um, so this was directed by John Carl Beekler, and his career began in the field of special effects makeup. A uh, field he continued to work in well into the 2010s. He unfortunately passed away in 2019. But he's very prominent and prolific. I mean, he's directed some films, but he's most prolific as a special effects uh, person. And he's worked on classics like Reanimator, Dolls, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 6, Freddy's Dead, Ghoulies, Tammy and the T-Rex, Halloween 4, and G- the Ginger Dead Man, which is a favorite of, of our Discord server. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of that one. That's crazy. Yeah, me neither, but it was on the Christmas challenge they did, and it it had a lot of fans. That's cool. He didn't do the special effects on this film, did he? He did. I mean, there was a big special effects team, but he, he did work um, on the special effects team for this film. Oh, cool. Good for him. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, supposedly the screenwriter Daryl Haney pitched multiple ideas to the producers. They were all shot down, and when he finally brought up an idea about the final girl having telekinetic powers, the producers viewed it as a Carrie versus Jason type film, and they they were into it. They bought it, and here we are. Yeah. Well, was it because... uh, I think that the whole idea of this film started with the Jason versus Freddy premise, but they couldn't get the studios to line up uh, the deal between Paramount and... Is it Paramount and New Line? Correct, yeah. And so is that why they landed on this storyline? It was because like this was the closest thing they could come to on like a Jason versus some kind of popular villain out there? That's a good question. I wouldn't be surprised. I saw those two things discussed like independently, like him pitching an idea of telekinesis and then being like, oh yeah, cool, like Jason versus Carrie and the like Freddy thing discussed separately but yeah that makes sense if the producers were hoping for the versus freddy they're like well we can settle for versus carrie yeah <laughs> right which this would have been what do you think like 10 years after carrie it was carrie like late 70s yeah i want to say carrie was 1976 but uh, i don't know yeah late mm. 70s is safe yeah yeah it's a really interesting choice I, I totally didn't expect to see that in a friday the 13th film did you I did not, and I have, like, there's been movies we see that try to do, like, genre mashups without specifically owning that they're doing a genre mashup. I'm thinking of uh, Nightbreed, which was, like, a weird supernatural monster movie that was also kind of a slasher. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they found a way, I think, to, well, I guess we'll discuss it more in the review, but... <laughs> It's it's not quite as wacky as it sounds. Yeah. Um, At least I think so, but we can talk more about that later. I think think you're right. I think there's like sincerity to it. It doesn't come off as like comical as you would expect with that premise. Right, right. Sometimes it does. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the actors in this movie, uh, none of them are huge names. The biggest name, though, is Kane Hodder. This Jason is his most famous role. He's the favorite Jason of many Friday the 13th fans, and he would go on to play Jason in the 8th, ninth, and 10th films in the franchise. Uh, he doesn't play Jason in Freddy vs. Jason or in the remake, but he, he kind of finished out the like continuity here, I guess. Um, mm. 
Although okay. I, I shouldn't say that not having seen all those movies. So interesting. Yeah, and yeah. he he got the part because he was in some movie and he actually put live maggots in his mouth. Did you read about that? <laughs> yes, exactly. He's like some yeah crazy dedicated dude and does his old stunts, his own stunts and everything. So pretty pretty wild. Yeah, and I didn't write that stuff down, but I think Beekler worked special effects on that film and so remembered working with Kane Hodder and saw his commitment in that role and, and tapped him for this. Yeah, <laughs> that's Chris. <laughs> uh, I, I thought uh, the other know, big actor would have mentioned was uh, Bernie from uh, Weekend of Bernie's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's here. You know, I, I didn't mention it because it was in the Ohio Connection. Oh, okay, okay. But you've, Got it. you've soiled our Ohio Connection. Damn, I bet. Uh, I should have known. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've, dude, I have a confession. I've never seen Weekend at Bernie's or Weekend at Bernie's 2. Oh, you know, it's been like, yeah, decades since I've seen it. Is it as good as everyone thinks it is? Or like, are you tempted to see it? I am tempted to see it. I have a feeling it's probably not that great, but I, I feel like I'd better watch it. Yeah, no, I know. I could definitely do, do with the rewatch because I, I don't feel like I appreciated it whenever I saw it. Speaking of things we haven't seen, Kane Hodder is also famous for playing a slash another slasher villain named Victor Crowley in the Hatchet franchise. You haven't seen any of those movies, have you? No, I haven't even heard of them. That that's a 80s franchise? No, it's recent. It's like 2000s. No, and it's not based on the book The Hatchet? Uh, I don't think so. Although I'm not familiar with that book. Oh, yeah, probably not. I think that was like a kid's book where Oh, The so. Hatchet. That's starting to come back to me. Right, like, like a, a plane classic crashes. lit, yeah, unrelated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I haven't heard of that, that that franchise. That's cool. So he's like so pretty active. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to check out Hatchet. Yep. Yeah, check um, that out. But yeah, it, Kane Hodder is a prolific stunt performer and stunt coordinator, and in fact, he served as the stunt coordinator for this film. So I think he's probably the biggest name here. Lar Park Lincoln, who plays the final girl Tina. She had a five-year stint on the television series Knots Landing, so uh, that was probably her biggest role. She's had some roles recently in some B-horror movies. Um, Kevin Spurdas, who plays the love interest, was on Days of Our Lives, and he was in The Hills Have Eyes too. And uh, one of the characters named Robin uh, was actually Jennifer from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. Oh, cool. Wow. I didn't really recognize her, but... I didn't either. I didn't, I'm not even sure what Robin was in this film. Yeah, the names... The, I don't recall any character's name from this film except for <laughs> yeah. Tina, Tina, Nick, Dr. Cruz, Tina's yeah. mom. Jason. And the Jason guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 32 from critics and 37 from users. Mm. Yeah. So one of the less... Uh, less regarded, least regarded of the franchise, I guess, if you go by that score compared to the other Rotten Tomatoes user and critics scores on other movies in the franchise. Hmm. Even, uh, uh, is it worse than part four? Part four actually, I think, had pretty decent reviews. Oh, yeah, sorry. I think part five. Part five, was, part yeah, five has horrible. some of the worst reviews in the franchise. Okay, okay. Nobody was a fan of that. Yeah, 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 right. But part then four. ones like part th- part three were like really big, like fans liked them, but critics hated them. Yeah, I was wondering if there's something with odd numbers here, uh, part three, five, and now now seven. Because I, I think we liked six and four, right? Or like a little relatively. Yeah, yeah. I think two. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Two, four, and six are pretty, pretty decent. Yeah, right, right. 
I wonder if they just kind of do a good movie, there's goodwill there, and then they ruin it, and they have to bring it back. Even though this one, it's crazy. Did, did you read that? Like one of the producers or someone was aiming for like an Academy Award-winning uh, Academy Award-winning film here. Yeah, yeah, and I. I feel like that's something that's probably been repeated all over the internet. I don't know that there's any quote from her saying, I want this to win an Academy Award. (laughs) But I think that's the way people that worked with her talked about it. Uh, And she did at one point supposedly seek out, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name, Fellini to direct the movie. And so, yeah, she was was aiming for a level of artistry that's really outside the uh, purview of this franchise. You think like by the time that this product like finished, she realized this it was probably a stretch. I yeah yeah I, I don't know at what stage in development she she had those thoughts, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would hope it was very early on. Uh, the budget for this was two point eight million. The box office was nineteen point one million. This had been the lowest earning film of the franchise. I yeah. thought those numbers are very similar to part six. Was they it? are very similar to part six, but this is just like a few hundred thousand dollars less than part six. Wow. Okay. Both to make and and its box office draw. Yeah. So that kind of explains, I guess, like why they were trying to uh, like do the Friday thing or like try to tie themselves up with another studio. Then. Yeah. Like yeah. They there. were, and that was the goal. I mean. Paramount's movies weren't performing as well as they'd hoped at the box office, and meanwhile, New Line's Freddy films were performing better, so Paramount reached out to New Line with a proposal for the crossover. That did come to fruition, but just not until years later, and then eventually we got Freddy vs. Jason in 2003. Got it, yeah. But, you know, still like 19 on like a 2 to $3 million budget, That's that seems like a success. Yeah, it's still, you know, over six times the budget. So, yeah, still successful. Right, right. This was scored yet again by Harry Manfredini, who scored nine of the 12 movies in the franchise. Uh, He has a credit under music, but it sounds like the score was really done by a guy named Fred Molin, who recycled a lot of Manfredini's previous scores and also added some of his own music. Oh, okay. So they're they're both credited as, as doing the music for this one. Cool. And pre-production, it was uh, under the name Birthday Bash, so people wouldn't know they were filming a Friday the Thirteenth franchise. And <laughs> multiple actresses from previous Friday films auditioned, and then were rejected once they admitted they were in a previous Friday the Thirteenth movie. Yeah, Did yeah. you catch that fun fact? I caught that. I don't get it. Wouldn't the people who would have been bringing them in for auditions? like catch that before they caught that yeah you would think they would see their full resume or something but maybe they just line people up and have auditions and haven't looked at their resumes beforehand i don't know how it works or haven't seen like the earlier movies and had no idea. right you would think they would have watched all the earlier movies but honestly if you're yeah maybe if you're assigned the casting job then maybe you cram all these movies maybe you don't even bother and you yeah just, yeah Right, right. Yeah, that could be. You didn't have, like, Wikipedia back then to know who exactly. was doing each film. Yeah. Right. Um, any other interesting background on this movie that you want to squeeze in here? Um, I think this is the most censored of all the Friday the 13th films. Yes, um, yes, good point. Right, and, and you can kind of tell that, right? When in, It was, like, kind of, uh, I think there's a joke that it should be called, like, the no blood. So the new exactly. blood. Exactly. 
Yeah. yeah, I was gonna bring this up in my plot run through because I I wrote my plot walkthrough before digging much deeper into the movie, like doing research. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was thinking that I'm sure the MPA like gutted this, but then as I read more about it, and I found a video on YouTube, which I would highly encourage anybody to go look up the the. I can't remember what the video is titled, but if you just search uncut kills from Friday the 13th part seven, you'll find some footage of what the kills were supposed to look like. And it's just a shame, man. This movie was butchered. Yeah. I wonder why this one was like so much more censored versus the other ones. I don't know. They supposedly had to send it in to the MPAA nine times before it got an R rating. Wow. That's insane. Um, and yeah, I think the MPAA just has had it out for this franchise historically. I think they just became the scapegoat for all on-screen violence, uh, partially because these were so popular and created such an outrage when they first came out. Um, but yeah, the MPA is really honed in on them. Yeah, and it's wow. it's frustrating. Like you and I are not even huge fans of this franchise. This franchise has so many diehards so i can only imagine how angry they are because i'm frustrated like watching this movie and you can see you can tell like there were supposed to be more here because the editing gets choppy and you just you don't see nearly as much as you should in a movie that doesn't really care about pulling any punches violence wise so right exactly it's frustrating and then to go see how it looked it's like that can change the entire pacing and cadence of a sequence like that's that's messed up it really does and, and that's like what these films are known for right like a lot of kills and like brutal kills and you yeah. just like taking out the brutality of a lot of kills which yeah it's really surprising some of the stuff too that they cut out it's like that doesn't even make the kill like that much less violent it's just like they made them cut three seconds out of a shot of a knife in a back or something and it's just that totally ruins the flow of the edits and stuff. It's just, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I'll definitely uh, YouTube that. Sounds interesting. Some of them, some of the kills were really good. The, yeah. And, yeah, they were what neutered. A, what a shame. And and uh, a lot of that was probably this guy's work then, the director's? Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of names in the special effects makeup crew, so I, I apologize. I didn't seek out any one name to call out. But yeah, John Carl Beekler definitely played a role in the special effects makeup. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a shame that, that that didn't get showcased more. And a lot of the kills where you really barely see anything, there was like a full... I'll, I'll try to go through... When we go through the plot, mention some of the things that were cut. It, it's hard to get to all of it because there's a lot of kills in this movie, but... There were a couple kills where I was like, that was nothing. And then there was an entire extended scene that, yeah. that really went into it. So Wow. Yep. It's a whole a different movie almost. Yeah, in a way. In a way. Well, should I hit the Ohio connection or do you have anything else you'd like to discuss at this uh, point of the show? No, that, that's all I got. Let's do it. All right. Our Ohio connection, as always, comes from our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. If you're in the area... Be sure to uh, go there and pick up some food. They've got great pierogies. Uh, sit down and have a drink as well. Great drinks. And Alex says, Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood is a slasher film prequel. No, I'm sorry. A slasher film sequel in the Jason universe. This time, a psychokinetic teenage girl unwittingly releases Jason from his tomb at the bottom of Crystal Lake. 
allowing him to go on another killing spree in the area. Many will better recognize actor Terry Kaiser, who plays the evil psychiatrist Dr. Cruz, for his portrayal of the deceased title character of the comedy Weekend at Bernie's and its sequel, Weekend at Bernie's 2. Kaiser has more than 140 acting credits to his name, wow, with a career spanning more than 50 years. In 2013, he starred as a Christmas tree farmer in the holiday film A Christmas Tree Miracle, which was filmed in 2011 on the Fisley Tree Farm in Belmont, Ohio. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, hey, man, I can't even remember if I told you this, but a, a big shout out to our friend Al Tyson from Discord, the first listener to ever go to Jukebox. What? Are you serious? Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, so thank so you very much, Al Tyson. I hope I'm pronouncing your handle correctly. But wow, we're glad you went and enjoyed yourself, and Alex is sorry he couldn't be there. For this big moment. <laughs> I know. For all three this, of us. This kind of debunks the theory I've had that all our listeners are fake. And just like living there, in our heads. At least one of them is real. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Oh, man. Or a very sophisticated bot. <laughs> yeah. Enough to order a drink at a bar. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very awesome. Thanks again, Al Tyson. And thanks for letting us know you were there. And uh, buddy, you ready to go to the plot and start spoiling things? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do that. But... um. Not to be crude, but uh, nature calls. Do you mind if I use the restroom and then call you right back? Oh, no, go for it. Okay, cool. We'll be right back, everybody. Okay, dude, I'm sorry that took so long. It was a total bummer. Oh, what happened? So I accidentally dropped my wedding ring down the toilet as it was flushing. (laughs) So I was like standing there so disappointed, and I gazed down into the toilet and said, oh, I wish you'd come back to me. And then sure enough, my ring shot right out and hit me in the chest. (laughs) So that was good luck, but then uh, my wish aimed at the contents of the toilet brought something else back to I had a lot of cleanup to do, which is what took me so long. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they never tell you that part about uh, bringing things back from uh, the water, I guess. (laughs) Got to be careful what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah, totally. Never know what's going to pop up. (laughs) (laughs) Anything in your peripheral view might get hit with the wish. Exactly. (laughs) All righty. So, yeah, I I wrote this plot walkthrough again before I saw the unedited kills, so... Which I think in a way is kind of good because I'm reviewing the movie as it stands at post-MPAA butchering. So, Which, yeah, so I th- here I think we go. You, I think you have to, right? I think so, I, unfortunately. Yeah. So as often happens with this franchise, the movie opens with three and a half minutes of a silly voiceover and clips from past movies reminding us who Jason is, what Camp Crystal Lake is, yada, yada, yada. And uh, this is the last time in the franchise that they show footage from a previous film. So I think we're done with these. Do you remember, uh, like, did part six? I I guess part six must have done this, right? Five and six didn't do it. Four was the last time they had done it. But I think they did it in every movie, in two, three, and four. But Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Because, yeah, I thought it had been a while. I was surprised to see that they were doing this again. uh, Yeah, right? Brought back some painful memories. Yeah, right. (laughs) But the voiceover was done by the guy who played Crazy Ralph in uh, 1 and 2. Uh, Yeah, that was... warned them about the death curse. Yeah, that was was a nice plug-in for him. (laughs) 
um, one thing I noticed right off the bat, the score that plays during the credits kind of sucks. Oh, like, it hit you right then? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it hit me immediately. Like, it was nice to hear something different than Manfredini, who I, I know I'm probably in the minority on this, but I just don't think his scores fit the, like, sleazy grittiness of this franchise. Uh, I think they're good scores, I just don't think they they match. So I was excited to hear something new, but I, I wasn't wild about this. Does he get credit for, like, the chi-chis and the ha-has? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's considered part of his score. Okay, okay. Those were, Good yeah. question. Yeah, I felt like those were pretty prominent in this film, and I wasn't sure if that's attributable to him or not. The chi-chis and the ha-has. Yeah. That's what all the fans call it. <laughs> exactly. I like to think Jason's the one doing that the whole time, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> just... Straight up real Jason in a recording booth. Yeah. No, like as he's walking around, like hunting people down, he's just kind of singing oh, that gotcha. to himself. That's his relaxation exercise. Yeah. Just killing some people. Calm Gigi down, Jason. <laughs> yeah, you can do You this. really didn't need to do that back there. You lost your cool. <laughs> yeah. You're breathing. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I was actually, knowing that I had become more lax on slasheries, I was excited to kind of just sit down, drink a beer, and enjoy this movie. And uh, with this flashback to old stuff and the score not being great, I was kind of like, oh, boy. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but our first shot of the actual narrative is of Jason at the bottom of the lake where he was uh, bested at the end of the sixth movie and chained up and, and is stuck down there. And we meet Tina, a little girl who runs away from a cabin right near the lake because her father is drinking again and he's just hit her mother. She jumps on a little boat and floats out into the lake and when her dad chases after her, she yells to him that she wishes he was dead. Well, after she wishes this, the dock he's standing on starts shaking, it collapses, killing him, and it's clear that she did this telekinetically and immediately regrets it. Oh, that was clear to you there? It was, yeah. There's some hints with uh, minor facial expressions and uh, the score and, yeah, lingering on her face, stuff like that. Oh, I thought Jason, like, caused that thing to collapse from, like, being underwater. Oh, gotcha. kicked out the legs or something, but that's cool you picked that up right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I would guess most people did, but, yeah. Um, we transitioned to, no offense to you, (laughs) we transitioned to present day. (laughs) Tina is now a teenager and she's with her mother. They've returned to the site of this tragic accident, uh, where her dad died along with Tina's doctor, Dr. Cruz. And it's framed that what's going on here is that the work that the doctor will be doing with Tina at this cabin is the only thing that can keep her from having to spend the rest of her life in an institution. There also happens to be some partying teenagers in the cabin across the way who are planning a surprise party for their friend. One of these teenagers is the hunky Nick, who has an awkward meet-cute with Tina when he helps her with the contents of her spilled suitcase. Tina and the doctor get to work, and he's trying to make her move things with her mind. He's yelling at her like a total asshole, and it's hinted at that he's trying to provoke her anger because he thinks that's what causes her telekinetic powers to kick in. He finally gets her to move a matchbox across the table, and eventually she causes it to burst into flames when she gets real pissed at him. 
And that's how you know that she has telekinesis, I think. And that's when, <laughs> if you missed it the first time, <laughs> Jason didn't make the matchbox move. Yeah, I don't think so at this point. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Uh, she runs out to the lake. She looks into the water. She's, like, dejected and, and pissed at herself and at everything. And she looks in the water where her dad died and says, I wish I could bring you back. And by doing this, she has unwittingly brought Jason back from the dead telekinetically she sees him get out of the water and faints at the sight of him. <laughs> Did you find it strange that he looked so surprised and panicky when he woke up? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think so. Uh, you, could, you could tell that from his facial expression? Well, from his, I mean, you can't see his face, but from his body language, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you they... read uh, facial expressions and body language okay? Uh, not very well. I mean, I can really tell who's he. <laughs> but I, it is surprising because, like, he doesn't kill her here, right? He, he leaves her unharmed. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, so I, we don't know what happened. Like, maybe he just didn't see her, or maybe he was like, hey, thanks. I owe yeah, you one. Yeah, exactly. That, that's kind of what I thought. Um, but yeah, you, you could sense uh, some confusion on, on his end. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, understandable. Who wouldn't be confused if they woke up from the dead underwater? Yeah, uh, yep. but it was just interesting to see the foreboding Jason going through that that little life moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, oh, hey, did you notice uh, Jason's appearance here? Like, were, were you able to take that in? Like, uh, I think is his spine sticking out the whole movie. Yeah, he's very much. He's decomposed. He's not quite the the handsome man he used to be, and he's more of an all out. Kind of like a zombie than than he has been in previous films. I mean, I know once you get to what is it part is it part six where he like literally comes back from the dead. So I suppose that would be the first zombie True Jason. Zombie, yeah. um, be gentle with me, franchise fans, if I'm getting any of that wrong. But mm -hmm. this seems like it has just a more defined like he he's just like more decomposed here. It seems like. He is, which I think it's funny because, like, you see him and he's, like, kind of bony, but he's still, like, huge and, like, pretty bulky. Right. So uh, it's kind of like a, a mixed uh, impression there. Sure, right. Some of that muscle tissue, uh, it was so well-defined over the years that it just stayed right in place. <laughs> exactly, that's what it was. Can't decompose this. No, no, let's not go anywhere. Um, so let's see, we transition to two teenagers who are on their way to Crystal Lake. One of them is uh, the person who the surprise party is for. I think his name is Michael. And when their car breaks down, uh, it's a guy and a girl. And the guy who is, uh, yeah, so the guy, I think it's Michael, right? I don't know. The names are so. important. Yeah, the movie. cousin. Yep. They wander off into the woods for one reason or another, and they are killed by Jason. Uh, there's very little suspense, in my opinion, in these kills. The girl is killed through a tree, which is a thing we've commented on through the franchise. There's always at least one kill where Jason stabs someone through something else. Mm -hmm. um, and the guy is running away and has a this spike like thrown at him, so that's how he's killed. Uh, I really didn't like it. it. I thought there was zero suspense to it, no style. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what this franchise does is just like, turns it to monster cam and they expect that to like be a stand-in for any actual craft of like creating a suspenseful kill scene like yeah they did a lot of that in this film didn't they like the, the they, being chased in the woods yes yeah and a lot of the monster cam and and people like 
shimmying and stumbling away from the monster cam. Uh, monster cam is what I'm calling like the POV of Jason. But I will say that there are uncut versions of these kills, and the kills themselves are a little bit better here. Neither, the uncut footage wouldn't have saved these kills. I, I, I probably would have had the same criticisms, but there is stuff that was missing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Gore could have helped him. I imagine that's what's on the uncensored one. Yeah, but, uh, he's like a more... Uh, it's more um, graphic when he stabs the both of them, really. The longer time with the knife in them and, and more gore. Sure, but then you're still missing like that suspense buildup. Yeah, you still wouldn't have the suspense, correct? Yeah, yeah it feels very quick. Did you find it funny that they linger on a sign telling us that they're at Crystal Lake when we... Just saw Jason come out of the lake. <laughs> we know. We know where this is. Yeah. No, I missed that. That's funny. Uh, meanwhile, Tina uh, has recovered from her fainting spell. She tells her doctor and her mother what she saw of Jason coming out of the water. And it's very clear that the doctor thinks she's delusional. Her mother lets her go next door to the party because she thinks they're being too hard on her by forcing her to go through this intense therapy with a doctor. And at the party, she has a vision of Michael, the guy we just saw, being killed, being murdered. So she drops her drink, runs home, and then sees a metal spike, just like the one used to kill Michael in her vision, wedged into the wood of their porch. So that same weapon is now wedged in their porch. She tells her mother and her doctor. The doc once again does not believe her. They go out to the porch so she can show him the spike to prove her point. And it is no longer there. So now she starts to believe the doctor that maybe maybe she's delusional. Maybe she is seeing things. She overhears the doctor and her mother talking about the fact that she's most likely going to have to be institutionalized now. And she makes a break for it. She jumps in the car and starts driving away, only to swerve off the road after seeing a vision of Jason stabbing her mother right in the middle of the road. And meanwhile, back at the house, her mother is rummaging through the doctor's things and finds in his desk drawer the metal spike, which Tina said was there, was wedged in the porch. So the doctor hid it purposely to make Tina look delusional. And Tina's mom also finds a recording indicating that Dr. Cruz isn't actually trying to help Tina. He's just trying to provoke her and make her angry as he believes this will cause her to experience bouts of telekinesis, which is what he's truly interested in at the expense of Tina's mental health. He's almost wearing down her mental health just to get more telekinesis out of her. I didn't I didn't get that. Like, what was his long game? What was he going to do with the telekinesis? Like, store it in a jar or something? I, <laughs> I mean, t- to be the, the doctor who's at the forefront of this new thing that nobody has seen before in the history of the world and be doing the studies on it and creating the documentation would be a big deal for him. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I imagine, but... Either way, he's an asshole. He's using Tina for this and and, and damaging her in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but the doctor and Tina realize, or Tina's mom, rather, realize Tina's gone, and they take to the woods to look for her. Um, but meanwhile, Jason has been doing some murdering. There's a scene in here where a couple of randoms are camping nearby in a tent, and they get murdered. Uh, one of the dude, the dude who's in the tent goes looking for wood, and he's using a machete to chop through some brush. And so this scene serves the purpose of adding some body count, but it also allows Jason to be reunited with a machete, his favorite murder weapon. And there is a kill here that 
is a favorite, I think, by some in the French for, uh, throughout the whole franchise. And it's one that was very neutered, but he picks up the girl in the tent in her sleeping bag, drags her out into the like woods, picks her up, and whips the sleeping bag into a tree with her in it, and that's how she's killed. Uh, yeah, I, th- but, I thought that was really cool. What did, what did you think? It's cool, but I it wasn't as cool as I had heard it hyped up to be. And then I watched the uncut version where he whacks it against the tree like six times. And that is much cooler. So it's a shame that that wasn't in, in the final cut. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that kind of cult works here where, like, they're trying to be off the Goran. So uh, seeing him, like, pick up that bag, and it, it sounds like it was actually a heavy sleeping bag. You can kind of tell, like, there's a decent amount of force there as well. So it, Yeah, think- yeah. Kane, supposedly Kane Hodder said it weighed 95 pounds, so... Not an easy thing for him to do. Yeah, yeah. So it was an effective kill, I thought, for for having to like pull back and everything. But yeah, seeing it, it six times would have been a lot cooler. Yeah, it was. It was. And the, I think when he killed the the guy, he took the machete from. He like ripped his heart out, which you you saw more of in the uncut kill. Oh wow. Okay. But again, I was underwhelmed by the suspense building here. How about you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think any any of these kills so far had like had a nice build up to them at all. It just kind of came out of nowhere. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so he then starts to pick off some of the various party goers. So I'll run through some moments from some of those kills. Um, when the rich guy whose uncle owns the cabin gets killed on the beach, uh, again, no suspense in my opinion. He, I, I'm sorry to keep beating up on that. They, they fix it later a little bit. Um, but he gets the machete to the face and has a giant gash on his face. Which we don't see much, but is shown in more detail later when people stumble upon his body. But again, the uncut kill has like a close up of it, the gurgling sounds of a guy who's just like lost half of his mouth and face. Uh, it's much more vicious. There are also two women among the party goers who like the same guy which is fun at first and causes some light tension, but then eventually the one who is written to be the quote-unquote less attractive one uh she loses in in this competition she ventures outside while her friend is having sex with the guy she likes and gets brutally murdered by jason which is just such a sad fate for this character who's like the only one of them who was nice to tina gets murdered while her friend is screwing the guy she likes i know that was sad i feel like they kind of like went out of the way to build her up a little bit and then yeah just kind of like knock her out like that uh, yeah, she was she was done dirty, but I really enjoyed this kill. I think they fixed the suspense problem with this one for me. She fled into a, like a barn or shed or something, and there's a cat and mouse game with her and Jason. Neither of them knows where the other one is. It's a cool setting in this little space here, and uh, it it feels like a very like fitting moment for the franchise in this setting, like this barn with all the farm tools on the walls and stuff, and. Uh, I dug it. It was suspenseful. What did you think of this one? Yeah, I mean, this was like the first kill that had like the cat and mouse vibe to it. Up, up until then, like, it's just like he kind of shows up and just kills people. So, uh, yeah, th- this one actually felt something. Same. Same here. Um, among the group is also this weird character that fancies himself a writer, and he's just doing real stupid shit the entire time, like pitching people half-baked ideas for these sci-fi things he wants to write. Um, Wasn't he like just like a random character? He was very random. Yeah. Um, but he has the best line of the movie, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. He's, Which one's <laughs> He's trying to hook up with this 
Melissa, who's like the fancy rich girl who's too good for everybody and she's stuck up, uh, she's like coming on to him and everything, but it turns out she's just using him to make Nick jealous and she ultimately rejects him. And then he responds, Rejection. Fine, I can take it. I've been rejected by some of the finest science fiction magazines in the continental United States. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. Was, oh, I thought you were going to say more. <laughs> uh, you, th- you thought that was one of the best lines in the film? Yeah, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, to, you're not laughing, so now I feel like an idiot. But to like, get turned down by hooking up with a girl and say, that's fine, I've been rejected by some of the finest science fiction magazines in the United States. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, that, that's like all he was talking about for like long times, like with those weird movie pitches and stuff. So I just feel like he was like so like one uh, dimensional or like one note that like that line when he said it didn't like surprise me that much. Oh, man. See, I kind of felt the opposite. I felt like I forgave his one noteness because it was all working up to this line. I, I oh. like almost did a spit take with my beer when I, <laughs> when I saw it. That's funny. There was a, a line that got me with a similar character. Um do you uh, remember the, the guy whose uncle owns the cabin? He's kind of like made out to like this like kind of Richie Rich kind of kid, right? Right. And like the place is a mess and he's like, this place looks like closing time at the stock exchange. <laughs> that's that's the one that got me. <laughs> Mine, mine's way funnier. <laughs> you think yours is funny? Mine's yeah. way funnier, man. Uh, okay, the stock well, we'll let the listeners vote. <laughs> yeah, that one killed me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, you had like these one note characters who were just like written with like one personality type, and then like somehow they would bring about like a clever line around it. Right, right. Um, Jason kills this dude Ben by squeezing his skull, and then kills Ben's girlfriend by stabbing her in the eye with a party blower. And we see no gore in either one. These kills, this Ben specifically, was like perhaps the most cut. By the MPAA, like if you find the uncut version, Jason like squeezes the head into a pulp and blood is spewing everywhere. It, it would have been a much better sequence here. Zero suspense. Jason just walks onto the screen and grabs his head, but it was a cool kill. Wow. Yeah, that would have been cool to see. And uh, Jason makes his way into this house where the party is. He kills a couple of guys. Uh, we don't see him sever their heads, but we, I think we see their severed heads after the fact. Robin stumbles upon one of the severed heads upstairs before Jason throws her out the window. And the other severed head shows up when Tina comes into the cabin and has a confrontation with Jason. And she telekinetically headbutts Jason <laughs> with someone else's severed head that resides in a potted plant. Like... The whole potted plant with the head in it goes across the room and like headbutts Jason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, a great, hey, oh, a great that, moment. That that Robin kill, I feel like that was like a drawn out one, but not that exciting. Like he had like the fate, the the cat jumping out of the closet. Yeah, there was a cat jump scare. Jump scare. Um, that one wasn't that exciting, and that was. Um, I don't think that was the original one that was intended, or at least there's an alternate scene where she thinks the guy's coming back and he opens the door and she sees his head but it's just his severed head that jason is holding and then he like throws it at her and stabs her with the machete that sounds awesome it, it was a little bit cooler yeah yeah a little this, less suspenseful but but kind of a cooler kill yeah I, th- I thought this kill just like dragged on for a long time it wasn't like that interesting yeah yeah you might be right did you already uh talk about the two in the van 
Yeah, that was Ben whose head he crushed and the oh, and right. his girlfriend with the party blower. Right, right, okay. I'm kind of jumping around in the plot, so you have to forgive me here. Yeah, it's it gets kind of forgettable. Yeah. Um and Jason and the order of events happen in it only matters a little bit. Um Jason eventually finds Dr. Cruz and Tina's mom in the woods and kills both of them. But Dr. Cruz is further solidified as an asshole by using Tina's mom as a human shield. And he then gets killed by a weed eater. Jason is wielding a weed eater, and we don't see hardly any damage done by the spinning blade of the weed eater. Um, But you don't see that much more in the uncut kill, even. Um, Actually, Tina's mom's kill was the one that would have looked even better uncut. Oh, wow. I thought with the the weed killer, the weed whacker would have been... A lot more interesting. Yeah, I mean, they show more gore, but it's not as savage as you was as you would think. Like the the Tina's mom kill feels a bit more brutal, and like probably because you care about Tina's mom as a character, as you know, as much as you can care about any character in a slasher, and and it's kind of a sad, like vicious kill. Yeah, yeah, I know because of that doctor. Uh, I thought the way Jason doctor. was showing up to these kills was interesting. Like you'd had you had like two characters talking in the woods. And then you just see like Jason kind of lumber around in the background. Uh, so yeah, the, his the way he would show up like wouldn't be like that suspenseful. And then it would jump to like that monster cam you talked about, where like they're running really fast. There's a camera behind them chasing them, but he's just kind of like walking at a distance. Yeah, that's a complaint that I've voiced many times throughout the franchise, and I think both of us have. Is so many kills are just like someone like. Guys, where is everybody? And then Jason just like walks onto the screen. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like no effort is given to try to make this suspenseful or like titillating yeah. in any way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This isn't like jumping out or anything. Just yeah, no, no craft to it. <laughs> exactly. A lot of the time. Um, Tina then stumbles upon Jason outside and uses her telekinetic powers to electrocute him with a nearby power line and a mud puddle. Uh, he survives this, though, and comes after her. She gets the upper hand on him again when she collapses an entire front porch on him, but he emerges from this by shoving his hand through the wreckage in a way that really makes me think that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze took a page from this movie's book with the super shredder scene. Oh, <laughs> when the when that like thing claps, the dock collapses on him. Yeah, yeah, his hand like emerges from the wreckage in the same way. It, like, uh, it looks like a very similar shot. Yep, yep. The scene of him being electrocuted, by the way, looks terrible. Oh yeah, that was dumb. Um, so yeah, any, jump- anytime. Oh, anytime like the wire was like moving on its own, I, I thought that was kind of silly. I think a lot of the times when Tina, maybe more so towards the beginning of the movie, but whenever she makes something move with her mind, it looked kind of dumb. Yeah, it did, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, the conclusion. I know I've been jumping around, but the conclusion takes place at the house where Tina has been staying. It's her and uh, her crush, Nick, against Jason. The stuck-up girl named Melissa shows up and is being a total jerk, and she goes to leave, but Jason is at the front sh- front door, and he gives her an axe to the face and just throws her over a TV, and she knocks over a lamp. And I loved the suspense in the shed kill, but this might be my favorite kill of the movie because Melissa sucks, and he just, like... Point blank gives her the axe to the face and tosses her aside Toss. like a rag doll. Yeah. <laughs> like the way she hits the furniture when he throws her is just savage. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Her her and the doctor, I think, are the worst. Doesn't he like punch the doctor at some point? Um 
Jason? I can't remember. Yeah, I thought that was one of the kills. Like, he just, like, punches them and then, like, kills them or something. Um, you don't oh, remember, man. like, a punch? I don't really remember. A pu- I mean, the guy who was, like, hunting for, hunting, <laughs> searching for wood for the fire, he gets, like, punched through the... I feel like Jason's punch, like, pierces his body and he rips his heart out. Oh, yeah, he's got a sharp punch. Yeah. Yeah. The old uh, scorpion finishing move. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. Finish I think him. that was scorpion. I think so. That um, sounds right. But anyway, Melissa is killed and tossed aside, and this leaves Tina and Nick. And when Nick is taken out of the mix by um, an injury that, that he's still alive, but he's out of the mix, it's up to Tina now. So she starts using her telekinetic powers against Jason. Uh, she chips away at his mask, and his face is revealed in full. And how did you feel about him losing the mask and, and what he looked like underneath. Uh, I thought it was cool because I, I think we've seen it like in uh, very like brief moments in the last uh, few films, but yeah. it was kind of cool like it lingered here and like we had his full face for like uh, like this last act. So I, I, I enjoyed it. What, what did you think? I thought his face looked good and I thought it was a nice change of pace to no longer be fighting a guy in a hockey mask, but to be fighting this like mutated, decomposed like zombie monster. Yeah, I kind of added like a demonic feel or like, yeah, some some kind of like a, yeah, monstrous, like before it was like just like a slasher guy in the woods hunting you down, but now it's like a straight up like ghost or like something. Grotesque. Yeah, I thought it looked really good too. And makeup was well done. Yep. Um, and actually, even before his mask comes off completely, th- there was like a chunk missing from his like jaw area and you could see like some of his like exposed jaw with like very little flesh on it it was like very like skeletal and decayed and it looked really cool he's between the makeup and the mask and kane hodder's size stature and presence and performance i think this is the most foreboding jason we've seen so far i don't know yeah about you. i i agree i agree uh and i, I couldn't tell if that was like uh also like the you know the, being able to like see some of his bones and stuff but yeah he was pretty menacing menacing on on screen in this one yeah, and I think that's why so many people really love Kane Hodder. He goes all out with the performance, and he commits to it, and it shows. I, I think I understand him him being the favorite Jason. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see it. It's a memorable um, performance. Yeah. So Tina's doing all the telekinesis things. She's choking him with a rope. She drops him into the basement. None of this does the job until she goes down the basement with him and uses gasoline and the house's boiler to telekinetically light him on fire. Her and Nick then flee the house before it explodes. <laughs> you know, everything has to explode when it of catches course. on fire in a movie. Yeah, I, yeah exactly. And they know it's going to explode. They're like, hit the deck! Yeah, exactly. I think that's why it explodes. Anytime in a movie, if you run away from something, yell, hit the deck, that means it's going to blow up, right? <laughs> yeah, it's obli- obligated to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, boy, if I had like a dime for every time me and my friends were like, playing in the woods or in my basement and one of us yelled hit the deck and we all jumped from a fake explosion yeah i'd be a rich man yeah that was like the go-to move back then that was good exactly i feel like die hard was was prominent in the minds of young kids who were playing whatever yeah yeah totally um so let's see kane hotter here supposedly set a hollywood record at the time he was on fire for a full 40 seconds i know that's insane it is insane. Uh, yeah, he did, man commits. He did, he did a lot of these stunts on his own, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think all of them. Right. Yeah, it's impressive. 
Um, so yeah, the house explodes. Tina exclaims, it's all gone. Everything's gone. And that's true, except for Jason. He's still alive. He returns to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> but Tina's dad emerges from the lake, grabs Jason with a chain, and drags him underwater, presumably to trap him underwater again uh, until the eighth installment of the franchise. Could you believe that Tina's dad showed up here? <laughs> no. No, I can't believe it. It's very stupid. It's... <laughs> It's so dumb. And then wouldn't her dad then just come out and be like, okay, I'm alive now. You brought me back from the dead. Yeah, exactly. Or is he just like under there with Jason making sure he doesn't come out now? Or yeah, did he just wake up for this little burst and then go back to dead? And, and he looked pretty good for being like in the water for that long. Right? Yeah, way better than Jason. Yeah, yeah, he fared pretty well. Yeah, I know. That, that was really weird and surprising and shocking. Yeah, it makes very little sense, too, because, like, has he just been lurking under the water ever since she brought him to life with her wish? <laughs> and and if she brought back both her dad and Jason, was just, like, are there a bunch of dead fish who came back, too? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> how far? What's the span of, like, of that wish? Yeah, I know. Well, so you, you think it was the wish that brought Jason back, or was it her just lifting a body out of the water, which happened to be Jason's? Well, I guess she didn't lift him out of. Well, actually, did she lift him out of the water, or just bring no, him? No, she life? didn't lift. She just she just woke him up and he got himself free. I thought it was like telekinetically. She felt a body down there, and she lifted it out of the water, um, and it turned out Maybe. to be the wrong guy. Maybe. <laughs> uh, that's always embarrassing when you telekinetically <laughs> bring somebody back. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe she lifted him. I, I just thought she looked down and wished. Um, yeah. But but yeah, it, it's hard to know how the what the logic is here. It's pretty loose. Mm. I have a theory, but yeah, uh, I'll, talk, I'll talk about it later. Well, I'm pretty much done with the plot rundown, except for a deleted scene that shows a fisherman being dragged underwater, letting us know that Jason is still alive. Oh, I didn't see that. that was, that's like on a bonus cut or something? It's a, I found it. It was tacked onto the Uncut Kills YouTube video I watched. Mm, cool, cool. Yeah, but uh, yeah, what's what's your theory? Because that's the movie. It, it just Nick and Nick and Tina are alive, and her dad saved her. Yeah, my theory is that this whole film is about grief, and uh, all these f- people dying while she's there is a metaphor about how like you hurt the people around you when you're grieving or something, or if you're not, uh, you know. Uh, um, you know, spending time to like kind of sit with it or whatever. And at the end, her dad coming and taking Jason into the water is something about like her coming to peace or terms or uh, some kind of like resolve in her character around uh, addressing that grief that she's had. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. What do you think? Is it it possible? No. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like, the, although they did want to win an Academy Award, so maybe it just feels a little highbrow for this uh, this movie. But I, I said no just to be funny mostly. But I, I like what you're uh, going for. Would Jason then be the representation of her grief? Exactly, yeah. The manifestation of like the grief that causes uh, pain to those around you. Uh, sure. And that you used to kind of uh, isolate yourself maybe sometimes. Yeah, I mean, when you're going through something uh, mental health-wise, you can really uh, drag drag every... Not to, that sounds like I'm blaming people with <laughs> really mental health issues. You're ruining it for everybody. <laughs> yeah, a real you party jerks. pooper. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah. If, you're, if you're going through something, yeah, you're... you're uh, 
it's hard for the people around you too. Yeah, yeah, right. So right. Ashwin is saying, if someone close to you dies, don't you dare grieve. Or you're ruining <laughs> everyone's lives. I know you're literally uh, crashing a party, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh man, nice. A surprise party. That's getting grief torn crashes down. the party. That, that was the only thing I could think of here, but yeah, other, otherwise it's like way too wacky that like her dad just like pops out at the end and like goes back into the water. It is so wacky. Yeah. What do you think of the movie as a whole? Uh, you know, I, I give it props for trying to do something different with the whole telekinesis thing. Totally like caught me by surprise. Uh, and I, you know, like, like you said earlier, I think, uh, this guy Kane Hodder was like an awesome Jason, um, but outside of that, uh, and you know, I actually thought Tina was like a decent final girl as well, and and Jason looked pretty cool. But then, yeah, outside of those things, um, there wasn't much redeeming here, and like I thought everything else was pretty weak in terms of the characters, development, acting, the kills, the gore, obviously like lacking a lot of suspense um, and and uh, cool uh, special effects or anything. So uh, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of a bad movie. What, what did you think? I actually liked this one a little bit better than most of them, which I'm sure will drive some people crazy. Some of this just has to do with my evolving taste in slashers, but for some of the reasons you called out, like I actually like this whole like Firestarter, Jean Grey, Carrie type plot. Like it, it's stupid in a lot of ways. Like there's nothing intelligent about having a woman, a girl with telekinesis, bring Jason back from the dead accidentally. It's dumb, but it kind of creates a cool dynamic. Uh, yeah, maybe like you said, it's just seven movies in. It's nice to have something new. It also made for something that's been kind of rare in the movies, a character, a main character with a background uh, who you know carries a flaw from her background into the narrative and has to confront that flaw throughout the arc of the movie. Um, and it has a plot with mechanics, you know? And you've got a villain who isn't Jason. You've got the human villain, which we've often talked about can as a way to strengthen a a script about a monster or, or any monster movie to have a human villain alongside the monster. You're talking um, about the doctor? The doctor, yeah. So I like it. It has actual a plot where things happen. You know, if you take all the kills away... There's the bones of a different movie here, you know. A, a girl goes to this the scene of an incident and tries to get well with her doctor and mother, and the mother later learns out the doctor has been using her, and she flees, and then they've got to go find her. And yeah, I mean that's the bones of a of a different movie, uh, not even a horror movie. So it's nice to have that uh, like scaffolding to hang the movie upon. Yeah, kind of like um, a story upon the story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's really. Most of those movies don't really even bother to have that much of a story. It's just finding excuses for people to go into a new space so that Jason can kill somebody somewhere else. Like, they go find something outside or in the shed or whatever. But we actually have some reasons for people to be places here. And, uh, yeah, there's more going on than just Jason killing people. That's a good point. Like, uh, yeah, they had, like, more parts to it. Uh, but do you feel like it was enough that the parts were there or uh, those parts, I feel like, were very, like, underdeveloped. Like, the Doctor and his, like, evil plan felt, like, very... I, I mean, it's, it's so hard to call it even a plot point. Like, it was just, like, kind of one or two lines to it. Or, or did you feel like those were developed or um, had they carried any weight? 
I feel like it carried some weight because I could kind of, you know, right away you can tell Dr. Cruz may not have the best intentions or like something's off with him. So I think there's more to it than one or two throwaway lines. And uh, I think the acting isn't great in this movie. Mm -hmm. But Terry Kaiser as Dr. Cruz and Lar Park Lincoln as Tina, they're okay. Their performances weren't horrible. Yeah. So like you said, I kind of like Tina as a final girl. Yeah, yeah, she was she was good. Um, are you sure the doctor was a villain? I mean, I the thing the thing he does with her mom is, is shitty, but outside of that, he's a medical practitioner, and you, and you don't think he was following like the book there? For sure. I mean, he was he was terrorizing his patient just so he could get these telekinetic phenomenons. How was he terrorizing and her? And threatening that? her to institution her if she didn't like show him what she could do. Oh, that's what he was doing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but the the whole idea to bring her back to like where her father died and like where she's carrying that guilt from, um, that was like to his benefit. It wasn't actually to help her. It was to his benefit. He thought if he could get her in emotionally unstable states that he'd be more likely to get results. So mm. yeah, so he brought her back to the scene of this horrible event to like rub her nose in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. That is like the senator sinister eighties uh, doctor. Right. Yeah, that, that's cool. Um, they, they have the character there, but then uh, you had like the whole premise of like the surprise party and all those teenagers. Uh, I did you feel like th- that was like a worthy plot? That that kind of felt like garbage to me. Yes, yeah, but I'm I'm saying a, another Jason film would have just had that be it. That's the plot. The, oh, it's a surprise sure. party. The guy doesn't show up, and then everyone starts to die. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. That's all you need for a Jason movie, but. I like that they went out of their way to put something else in the mix, too. Yeah, yeah. So that was happening. A Jason movie was happening next door to uh, um, another movie happening, you know? And they, <laughs> they merged them fairly well, to be honest, for how ridiculous this is. That It's a movie that's not necessarily that high quality about a telekinetic girl who comes... Uh, and her, her life path overlaps with Jason killing a bunch of people. It sounds like it would be so shoehorned in. Right, right. But I think they made it work in a really weird way. I mean, her coming, her dad coming back to take Jason under in the final conclusion, there's no bones about it. That's really stupid. But if you're on board with the movie, it's just... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe I was just giving this movie a pass because I was drinking some beer and some funnier stuff happened than it, than some other uh, <laughs> Friday the 13th movies, and I yeah. love that sci-fi magazine line, but it, it kind of, I don't know, am I wrong that it kind of worked in a weird way? No, I, I completely had that uh, similar thought. Like, I could see watching this with friends and stuff, and this just being like a great, uh, fun, like almost like a popcorn movie to, to watch. Uh, you got have like a lot of kills. You have some decent storylines there, as you mentioned. You got a cool Jason and a, a decent final girl. So it has all, all the elements of like a, a fun movie, and, and it works overall, right? I think so. And I think, um, yeah, my biggest beef is that the you go to Jason's POV for the kills, and they expect that to be a stand-in for suspense, and it's not. But there's that great kill in the barn that that had a lot of suspense, and there were a couple of, well, maybe one more kill. Like the Melissa kill was fun with axe to the face and throwing her across the room. And the sleeping bag kill. The sleeping so bag, yeah. A few that are a little bit more entertaining than even the average Friday the 13th kill, in my personal opinion. Right, right. Um, 
And like you said, Jason, this is the best Jason so far. And Kane Hodder does a great job. I also noticed, especially when he enters the house, the house where the surprise party was, the lighting done in that house is pretty well done. There's a lightning storm happening outside. And Jason just looks very foreboding in that house. It's, it's, again, they're not really pacing the shots and framing things well for suspense, but the lighting and Jason's stature makes it lend some suspense to it. Yeah, it, right, it's, right. It's kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah, his, his appearance in this uh, works really well. I, I think when he's on screen in this movie, it's, it's like uh, those are like some of the best shots Yes, I agree. Well, Let's yeah, see. no, I, I think all, all the positives you point out uh, are definitely there. I struggle, though, to say, like, 5 and 6 didn't have those similar things. Like, in, in 6, you had the whole uh, sheriff storyline, and who's it? Was it Tommy Jarvis was the recurring character? Yes. So, so you did have a character with, like, a past that you could connect things to, right? Yeah, and so, yeah, and 6 is my favorite one so far, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of ignoring six with uh, my kind of like yeah um, broad cr- criticism of the franchise that there's normally not any plot. But yeah, Tommy sure. Jarvis was a, is a great character in part six. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But yeah, I, I think having a character with like who's carrying bringing that emotion into the movie definitely helps. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, I mean, there's things that are bad. The sound editing is pretty poor. Uh, uh-huh. Editing in general is kind of bad. Yeah, the kill editing uh, is terrible, right? It, like, yeah, it cuts and again, away, like, part right of that's probably due to the MPA having forcing them to shop it up. But yeah, um, yeah. But even so, it, it seems like there's even outside of kills, there's some edits that just don't flow quite right. Yep, yep. Uh, did you need like you know twenty people in that house next door, or could you have had like three? There's four? a lot of people. But yeah, I mean, they got to add to the body count. I wasn't is upset about any of the... Like, some of these movies have just been like, oh my gosh, there's people out of nowhere being killed for no reason. And there were, again, in in this movie, especially those campers, but I don't know why. I just found myself not minding it as much in this movie. Oh. You know, I yeah, I struggled because I I couldn't name any of them. And there's that one couple, the one that gets killed in the van that was like having a fight that like we never know anything about. It's just like two or three lines between them. Um, So I, I feel like... Yeah, it just and then yeah, those two girls are like kind of fighting over the one guy. It was just very like brief storylines that were there kind of for no reason. Yeah, I feel like at least they had their own little weird brief things. Like they were they were fleshed out slightly more than some other victims <laughs> in the franchise. Slightly, I slightly. I guess I, I don't know. I struggle with that. Like sometimes, is it better to have like no storyline, or, or like if you just like half-ass like let's give this character one note, uh, here's one line for this character that gives them their character uh, or, or like their personality. Is that better? Like uh, I, I don't know. That's a hard one to define. Hmm. Okay. Um. Let's see. Well, I think that might be all the like positives and negatives. Any anything else before we go to the rating? Uh, the music never got better for you, right? Yeah, I mean, the music got better because it really was mostly Manfredini's score. Um, but still not not my favorite. How about you? Uh, no, it didn't really stand out to me. I, I think I liked it in 6, but uh, not so much here. 
I appreciated that they were adding more, like this Molin dude. He he add more synth to it. He made it sound more like an '80s movie, but um, I still wasn't wild about it. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, okay, so no, I, yeah, go ahead. Zero to five science fiction magazine rejections. What do you give this movie? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I think it was a fun one. So I give it two and a half uh, science fiction film rejections. Um, cause, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a watch one. I think with, with a group of people, it'd be a lot of fun, but, uh, not to like the height or like the, uh, level I enjoyed with like six. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I give it a three out of five rejections from a science fiction magazine. I, I thought it was kind of fun. It's not a good movie, but it was fun enough and it kept my attention. I like six better, but, uh, part of me is just. Part of it might just be me coming around on the franchise, but I, I like this better than uh, than most Friday the Thirteenth movies. Yeah, yeah, I would put this up there uh, towards the better half. Uh, in, I think in it's just like the, it went bonkers and not, like some of the movies are just so they just feel kind of plain to me. Like there's 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 not much character, but this was so out there. Yeah, that it had more character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it. It's it. It stands um, out. It does. It does stand out. Uh, it, that is funny, though, what you say about, like, uh, I wonder if we've just, like, seen so many of these now that our bar just keeps, like, kind of falling lower and lower. And, like, I it wonder could if we, be. Yeah. I, I wonder if we'd seen this, like, earlier on in, in our podcast if um, we'd be in a lot different place than we are now. Right, right. And I'd be interested to watch, like, the first one and, and the second one again and see how I feel about those. Yeah. Same. And four. I mean, I, I was, like... I think I might have given four or three and been like, okay, this is decent, but I could see myself enjoying it more now. I don't know. I, one day we'll go back. Yeah, one day. I'd love to someday down the road start doing some like episodes where we re-examine either things we gave negative reviews to or things where we disagreed on a lot. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, you're just trying fun. to watch Tusk again, aren't you? Yeah, a Tusk episode, a Doctor Sleep revisit episode, maybe a Midsommar revisit. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. Yeah, we got a few to cover. All right, anything else before we wrap up? No, that's all I got. All right, well, that has been our episode on Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, everybody. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it'd be great if you would give us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and find the social links drop down. There you will find links to our Twitter and Facebook where we announce what movie we're covering next week and where you can watch it. There's also a link there for our Discord server where we're chatting with a bunch of horror movie fans and listeners and we've we've been blessed with a great community there. So if you want to talk to people about horror movies, come join up and, and chat with some folks. Uh, our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. She's got a lot of great art on Etsy.com if you search Amy Mae Pop Art, all one word. Or you can just Google Horror Movie Club Podcast Coasters, and that will take you to her page, but will also take you to some a cool coaster set we have that you can buy to support the show. Um, and until next time, if you have a telekinetic friend, um, make sure not to make them angry on a front porch, a dock, or near any gasoline, <laughs> by a lake. Buy a book of matches near a TV. <laughs> Where's the best place to confront them? Like, <laughs> yeah, have like a desert, maybe. <laughs> Although sand in the eyes is never good. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah, that can be very painful. Don't have a telekinetic friend. They'll grab. They'll drag you down with their grief. I know. <laughs>
Exactly. <laughs> It'll crash all your parties. Really nice.